You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Good morning. So today we're following on in the book of Acts. We've been looking in the book of Acts now for a few weeks, quite a few weeks, months. Um, And today we're in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to read the second half of this chapter. We're going to read from verse 23 through to verse 41. The first half of um, Acts 19 is looking at Paul in Ephesus. And he'd been there for two years. And now we're looking at the second half. Paul, at this point, has actually left Ephesus. And this is um, some of the results of him being there. So we're going to read Acts 19, verse 23 to verse 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is um, those that were following Jesus. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the the early Christians at that time were called the way. So uh, about that time, there rose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped through the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, um, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But they realised he was a Jew and they shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city um, clerk quietened the crown and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the garden of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. And if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance about anybody, um, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. 
maybe a few bits of background information that might be helpful uh, before we look at this would be that Artemis, um, the god of, um, is known as the god of fertility, and people in Ephesus, the Ephesians, would worship Artemis, and they had built her a massive temple, and in that temple there was a statue of her, and her whole top half was covered in what looked like breasts or eggs hanging, and she was known as the god of fertility. And they had made a massive temple. If you've ever seen the Acropolis in Greece, it was four times the size of that. Absolutely massive. And it says there in verse 35, they worship not only her, but her, her image that fell from heaven. And it's thought that this is a meteorite that fell from heaven and it was all of its lumps and bumps. They believed that it was a, an image of Artemis. And so that was also there. Then people would travel for, for a long way to come and visit this temple and to worship her. And it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People from all over Asia, as we hear there, would come to that temple and would buy their uh, shrines and their statues from this guy Demetrius and his fellow workers. It was massive. Also, the theatre that it's talking about here um, would have been a big, big theatre in the town where they would have had all their town meetings that fit about 25,000 people could fit in that. And they, that's where they would meet when they were going through anything that the town clerks and the town leaders wanted to speak to the people about. And so this was where um, all of this rioting and, and shouting was happening. But Ephesus was a free city. It was ultimately under Roman rule, um, but it was a free city. They were allowed to look after their own money and they were allowed to have their own town clerks that would look after business. And that's why um, the town clerk is getting upset here because he knows fine well um, that if they get back to the Romans that there's rioting and shouting and they're not in control of what's going on, then the Romans might come and intervene. So he wanted to come completely quieten it down. So those are a few of the background facts that, that might be interesting for us to know as we go through this scripture. I've got a Hoover at home, and it used to be a Dyson Hoover. Now, you might think, well, if it used to be a Dyson Hoover, it probably still is a Dyson Hoover, but I really don't think it is. Um, I got it secondhand from somebody else, and um, when, they, when they gave it to me, it was working fine. But over the years that I'd had it, it started to, bits would break here and there. And so I think I've changed pretty much everything in the whole Hoover. So I don't think we can call it a Dyson anymore because when I went online to find the bits, Dyson was really expensive, but there was always some generic make that was a lot cheaper and it works. It still works, it still hoovers up. But I think I've changed the brushes, the cylinder, wheels, the hose, the pipe. I think the only thing that's left of Dyson is the handle bit that's got the wire coming into it. And I think it still has the name on it there. The Hoover still works, but it had gone through a significant change that no longer could be called a Dyson. And we see here the city of Ephesus. According to Demetrius, large numbers of people had started to, to follow Paul and his teaching as he taught about the kingdom of God. The community was changing. People were no longer buying the, the religious artifacts that they were buying. They were no longer following and worshiping um, Artemis, the god of um, fertility. It had gone through a significant change. Paul had spent two years in this city preaching the kingdom of God. 
and people were set free. When you read the first um, half of the chapter 19, people are set free. People have been, um, ha had demons left them. They've been um, healed of sicknesses. Um, God did some extraordinary miracles there as well. Like Paul would pray over and bless a handkerchief and then it would be taken um, to the person who was sick and they would be made well. They had gone through a massive change. Individuals' lives had changed to the fact that then the whole community was changing. People were not buying all of these artifacts anymore. People were not worshipping at the temple. People were not travelling to go and worship um, the god of fertility. That, that was such a big thing for them in Ephesus. And all of this started with just 12 people. 12 people, it said in, in chapter 19 at the beginning. When Paul went to Ephesus, he found 12 believers. So when Paul and his traveling companions went and ministered to those, they were filled with the Spirit of God. And as he preached the kingdom of God and his lives were changing, not just those individuals, but it had an effect on the whole community. We read in verse 26, it says that Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people and practically the whole province of Asia. It was having a ripple effect for the good. The work that God was doing, the kingdom of God was advancing in that place and a massive change had happened. The kingdom of God has the power to change not just individual lives, but transform whole communities. I have a friend who's a, a missionary out in Africa. I went to university with her here in Aberdeen and she lives in um, Zimbabwe, but we were going on mission to, well, she was going on mission to DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I asked if I could go with her because I thought that would be an amazing opportunity. So I did. I went, this was quite a number of years ago. I went over and met her there and um, joined in their evangelistic rally, I suppose it would be called, where each night for a whole week we would set up and hundreds of people would come, they would worship God and they would hear about God, they would meet the living God and there, there was many, many healings and many, many people set free from a number of things. And so I can see a glimpse of the kind of thing that would have happened here at Ephesus. But it had an effect on the community as well for those um, for those lives being changed. There was a little fire every night set at the front and people who were following other spiritual stuff would come forward and, and burn their paraphernalia that they maybe had had from the witch doctor or they, they kept on themselves because that was a big thing over there. And after three or four days there, it was causing a problem in the community where um, those people whose livelihoods were being threatened, like the, the, the witch doctors, they, they weren't happy about this thing happening. And used to start seeing a little bit of um, kind of revolt against what God was doing in the community by those who, who didn't want to follow God, I suppose. God's power and God's kingdom changes lives to the effect that it changes community. It affects the communities out there. We hear stories of that all over. In the 1800s, early 1800s, there was a town in New York that you can read about where a guy called Charles Finney was ministering. And, and it reports that at that time, the taverns were all out of business and police had to find new jobs because God's power and God's spirit was moving in such a way. And there's places closer to home as well, isn't there? That we hear about the Welsh revival in the early 1900s where all the pubs shut. Nobody wanted to spend their time in pubs. They wanted to, to be spending time worshipping God and caring for each other. And the same up in the Hebrides 
in the islands, the bars were emptied because everybody was in church. When individual lives are changed, whole communities are changed. And my favourite story about changed communities is one that I heard from um, the guy who started Prison Fellowship, Chuck Colson. He wrote this. He's passed away now, but he wrote in a, in a book. But he'd visited a prison in Brazil. Now, Brazil has notorious prisons full of violence um, and murders and a lot of gang activity. But there was one prison in a place called San Jose, Dos Campos, San Jose Dos Campos in Brazil. And it was run by uh, Prison Fellowship and APAC. It was called Romati Prison. And in that prison, Chuck Colson went to visit it and he said there was 730 prisoners, but just two members of staff, which was quite different to the kind of notorious um, prisons and the way that the prisons are run in Brazil. And in fact, anywhere, uh, you know, Grampian Prison here in Aberdeen, there's no way that that would happen either. But so when Chuck went in, he said he was asking the prisoners and he could see prisoners smiling at each other. He was welcomed in by the prisoners and shown around by prisoners. And he was saying that it was run on a regime of love and compassion and restorative justice and discipline. But everybody was so happy to be there. People um, mentoring each other, prisoners mentoring each other, Christians from the community coming in with an open door to mentor and spend time reading the Bible together. There was such a different atmosphere in that prison. The recidivism rate, which is the kind of re-offending rate, the kind of uh, cycle of getting out of prison and then coming back in, um, in Brazil at that time was 80%. So 80% of those being released would be expected to come back in or were coming back into prison within a certain amount of time. But in this prison here in Brazil, the recidivism rate was 4%. Because people's lives were being changed and they were being released into the community and they were staying out because their lives had changed in that uh, massive way. So Chuck had asked, well, how has all this happened? How did this happen? Like, what is going on here? And the prisoner said, if you want to see, I'll take you. And he said, I'll take you to the only locked prison door in this whole, um, in this whole place. And so Chuck said, yeah, I, I want to see. I want to go and see that. And he led Chuck down, uh, uh, down to the basement and along a pathway, uh, a pathway. Uh, like a passageway um, and at the end of it, it was very dark and dingy he said this is the only locked door in the prison this is our solitary confinement and as he put the key in the door to unlock the door he said to Chuck Colson are you sure you want to see in here and Chuck was like yes I want to see what's caused this change and as he did that um, and opened the door the, the, he said the room is empty apart from a really big cross with a crucifix with Jesus hanging on the cross. And the prisoner said to Chuck, he has done the time for every single one of us here. And our lives are completely different because of that. You know, these are all stories of transformed communities, but it starts with those individuals, doesn't it? The kingdom of God has the power not just to change our individual lives, but as we change and as our habits change and our behaviours change, our whole communities are changed and everybody gets to see the power of God. Imagine what God can do in our communities. That was just 12 people. And by the end of this week, I don't know how many people will have watched this, um, this service and this sermon and heard these words, but it will be way more than 12 people. 
So imagine what God can do in our communities. Can you imagine our communities without violence, without racism, without crime, with, with pubs turning into cafes because nobody wants to just spend their time drinking alcohol every night? Can you imagine bookies closing and brothels closing? Can you imagine the prisoners not wanting to go back to prison, or not even that they want to go back to prison, but their life's changed so that they're not in prison anymore. That community is a place where they can find love and compassion and forgiveness, and so their lives are able to change. Could you imagine that? And, and for me, this has been really challenging, because as I'm reading this, I sometimes forget about the amazing transformation that God can do in our community. And I'm the transform pastor, so that's really bad, but it's been so challenging for me. How much of a difference can God make in our communities? And how much are we asking him for or expecting him for or hoping for? Why don't we just take a wee minute to pray for that this now? So God, we thank you for the transformative work of your gospel and for your kingdom. Lord, the work that you've done in our lives, in our individual lives. But Lord, would you give us hope and would you give us expectation as we look at the community around us, our friends, our family, our loved ones. Lord, would you help us to start to look at how the change in us can bring change in the community, how your spirit working in us can work through us to bring change and to bring transformation for those around us. Would you increase our vision, our hope and our prayers? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second point I want to look at. Have you ever had the, um, the kind of situation where you don't really know what it is that you want? You know, you might be going to an ice cream shop or something or looking at, at, at packets of crisps and you think, I don't know which one, I don't know what flavour I want, I don't know what, what I want. And then just when you're thinking, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, just when you, you point to the one that you're going to have, you decide, no, that's not what I want. It's this other one. It's only when you know that you're going to lose the thing that you want that actually you recognise what it is that you really want. There was a time um, a few years ago when our church, before our church was multi-site, we were meeting in one building. And as um, a member of the leadership team, we were looking at other buildings, bigger buildings, where we could go, where we could take our whole congregation to. Um, and, uh, and there was a few different places we looked at. And um, as we were looking at them, then we were taking some time to pray about it and to ask God about that. And so there was one particular building and everything looked fine about it. It was probably big enough in size for us to do some stuff with. Um, we were getting down the idea of where we would put different kind of ministries and all that kind of thing. And as we went back to the church, I remember we were praying and all of a sudden I was overcome with emotion. And if you know me, that, that doesn't really happen very often. And it was just this heartbreaking sobbing that and I couldn't stop and it was in front of, of the rest of the leadership team but the idea was you know as I was thinking about us moving out the building we were in something in my heart was breaking and I had this picture of the door um, where we do a lot of ministry from and it's, it's now our central site our Rosemount building where over the years people have come when their lives have been in such a mess and they've known that if they knock on this door they can meet with 
a representative of God, an ambassador of God, and they can meet with God in that way. We've had people come who have been at the end of their lives, um, suicidal, not knowing what to do. We've had people come who have been just overcome with the weight of their sin and want to forgiveness and to give their lives to Jesus. We've had people who have been hungry and need food. We've had people in many different circumstances coming to that door and just the thought of then knocking on that door and that door being full of apartments or flats or I don't, I don't know what it was, but there was something in me that raised up that was like, God, um, there's something in me that was revealed as we brought it before God that I hadn't been aware of before, but there it was. The Spirit of God revealed something deep inside of me. And coming face to face with the kingdom of God here for Demetrius was revealing something in him. And it was revealing his idols. There is lots of talk about idols in the scripture that we've read about the God of fertility, about Artemis and about the shrines that they're making. But actually, the main reason for that revolt that we can read in verse 25 of that scripture is about our, uh, Demetrius's pocket. It's about money. He says this to start with. He says that he called them all together and said, we've received a good income from this business. This was hitting, the kingdom of God advancing in Ephesus was hitting Demetrius in his pocket. People were no longer wanting to buy those little trinkets and those shrines. They didn't want to buy them anymore and it hit him in his pocket. Wow. And then what did he do after that? He then made it then about the other stuff. He was and then convincing everybody, you know, that it's, it's the God of Artemis that they're disrespecting. And all of this stuff kind of grew and grew and grew. And he actually, he was a lot of manipulation. We can tell it because there was so much confusion. We have those people there shouting in that theatre. It says there that people didn't know what they were shouting about, it says in verse 32. There was so much confusion. Two hours they spent shouting. Some of them shouting one thing, some of them shouting another, and some of them not even knowing why they were there, just following the crowd, because Demetrius was so intent on making this happen because his money had stopped coming in. People were buying, were not buying anymore what he wanted to sell. And for him, that was an, a massive thing, you know? That was, that was a massive thing, and that was where it all started from in this scripture. It reminds me of a story in Matthew 19 where um, Jesus met with a rich young ruler. Um, and in that time, this young man had met with Jesus. Let me just get to the scripture. He met with Jesus and he was saying to Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said this to him. He said, um, you must keep the commandments. And he said, well, which commandments is it that I have to keep? And Jesus said, well, you shan't murder or commit adultery, not stealing, um, don't give false testimony. You know, just went through them and, and the man said, well, I keep all of those. What still do I lack? And Jesus said that if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And it says there, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad. He'd met with the living God. But yet money was the thing that made him go away with sadness in his heart. And Demetrius here, he'd met with the living God. Others had met the living God and had stopped um, uh, worshipping false idols. But Demetrius, his idol in his life, his money, 
meant too much to him and he was not willing to give that up. And instead, this is what happened. This riot happened instead. Now, we might think, well, that's not us. You know, we're in church. We're watching church today. You know, that's not us. We have given up those things. We are following Jesus. But I've been really challenged this week as I've been reading this and thinking about the idols in our life. Because as we come face to face with the kingdom of God and as we go deeper with Jesus, it's not just about that first um, step of following him, but it's as we go deeper with him. What are the things in our life that actually maybe we are not willing to give up? Maybe we are not willing to do that. We'll just stay where we're at and we'll just say we're following Jesus, but don't touch the things in our life that are more important to us. Um, and I don't know if that's what you're um, hearing when you read this, but that's what I was reading when I, heard, when I was reading this. That's what I was hearing God saying, the idols, the things in our life where they maybe take um, place of our reliance on God. They take place of the blessings of God in our life, the things we spend our time and our effort on, and the things that make us push back on God. So what are those things in our lives? It could be a reputation. It could be that, you know, we feel God say um, to speak to somebody about him and we're like, no, God, do you know how stupid I'm going to look if I go and say that to that person? I'm not willing to risk my reputation to go and do that. I'm not willing to risk that. It's become an idol in my life. It's more important. Maybe it's our family. God, no, this is my family. This is my family time. I'm not using my family to bless others. I'm not inviting anybody else in. It's my family, God. You can't ask me to do anything with that. Maybe it's our finances. Maybe we, we're saving money for, for, I don't know, a hole in the roof or our holidays, and we feel God prompt us to give something to somebody. And we say, no, that money is important, God. Anything else but that money. What are the things that we push back on? Is it our cars? I can't give that person a lift. They're smelly and they're dirty. Are we making that car more important than what God is asking us to do? Is it our homes? Is it our jobs? Is it the things we do for entertainment? What are the things where we push back on God and say, no, those things belong to us, God. Anything else but not those things. It's so challenging when we look at idols. It won't necessarily be the things that stop us from following God completely, but what are the things that stop us following him deeper? Why don't we take a minute to pray about those? Lord Jesus, you have given us so many blessings. And Lord, when we follow you and we follow you deeper and your kingdom of God, your kingdom comes more and more in our lives. Lord Jesus, would you reveal to us and you are revealing to us the things in our lives where we are just not willing maybe to give up or to follow you into because they mean a little bit more to us. But Jesus, we confess, Lord, those things. Those things aren't bad in themselves, but Lord, when they stop us following you, they become idols in our lives. So Lord, would you bring revelation? Would your spirit come and would we see the things that are holding us back? And would you help us to put them at your feet and to entrust them to you and to follow you wherever you've got for us to go, that we won't be the ones turning away with sadness because we can't follow, but Lord, that we would trust you and entrust everything that you've given us back to you. Amen. And my third point is we need to stay alert. 
You know, this isn't just a one-time thing when we um, meet with God and all of this change happens, our communities are transformed and our idols are revealed and everything's hunky-dory and we live and we ride on that for the rest of our lives. But we need to stay alert and we need to keep pressing in. In Revelation, in the church to Ephesus, the church, um, there was letters written in the book of Revelation and the one that was written to the church in Ephesus um, commends them on all the stuff they've done. It says, you know, in, in Revelation 2, it says, you know, I know your deeds, I know your hard works and your perseverance and your intolerance of wickedness and all of that. It's amazing stuff. But in verse 4, it says this, but yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Complacency had set in. They had lost the love and the passion that they'd had at the beginning. You know, maybe they had given up buying these idols from Demetrius and they didn't have these little shrines or these trinkets. Um, but maybe over the years, they started to have them again in their homes. And maybe they were thinking, well, I'm a mature Christian now. I can have this here. Um, it's not really, I'm not worshipping it. It's just for, you know, it's for fashion. It's for decoration. I don't know what that, what, if that is what happened. But sometimes that's what we can find happening in our life. When we're passionate and going for it with God right at the beginning, we maybe gave things up. You're maybe like me, give up certain types of music and certain ways we're speaking to each other because we want nothing to stand in the way of following Jesus. But over the years, 20 years in, five years in, 10 years in, we start to let those things creep back in because actually we're mature enough now to do them. But really, are we dressing up complacency with a maturity? Or are we being real? Have we lost the passion and the first love? We need to stay alert to what God is doing. I have some friends who live over in um, California and I was there visiting them recently and um, they didn't have any ants in their house, but um, they had had some ants in their house, but they had to get rid of them. But they were outside still. And there was one time we were eating our dinner outside and there was none there at that time, but the next morning when we sat at that table and there was no food there, we obviously hadn't got rid of all the crumbs, but there was like one or two ants. And then before you know it, we were sitting there and, and my friend, had she, she was feeling them on her face, they were on her computer, they were everywhere. And if you know about ants, they can be really destructive. And one or two we might think is really cute, but actually um, they can do a lot of harm and a lot of damage. And they can do quite amazing things, ants. You can lift really heavy things around. One or two, you know, we might be complacent with that and think, oh, that's not bad. But actually, if we allow the one or two to be there, what um, devastation would come. If she'd let them stay in her house, what devastation would have come from being overridden by ants? And Song of Solomon um, in the Old Testament, um, Solomon writes this. He says, catch for us the little foxes that ruin the vineyards or vineyards that are in bloom. And I love this, this scripture, it's a little bit of scripture. It's talking about, you know, these little foxes that you think, what can they do, you know? This vineyard is massive. They can't really do much harm. But when they bury in to the, the depths and they get the roots of the vine, they can kill off um, so much, I don't know, acres of vineyards, I suppose. You've got to catch the little foxes. Don't be complacent about allowing one or two things in because before you know it, the damage is done. And that's like our lives with Jesus. We need to stay focused. We need to stay alert. 
we need to remember not to lose um, the, the, the first love and the passion that we'd had, but let's keep that going, going deeper and deeper with Jesus so that our communities and our lives can be transformed. Thank you. Let's pray. So God, we pray, give this all to you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to stay alert, to keep um, pressing into you, Jesus, to go further and to go deeper with you. And Lord, would you help us to pinpoint the things in our life, Lord, that maybe we've been complacent with, maybe we've let back in. Would you show us them? Would you reveal us to them, Lord? And would you help us to, to turn again with the passion and the love to what you've got for us to do, that our lives are set apart and holy, going deeper and focusing on you? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.